Welcome to the Breakwater Podcast. On today's episode, we talked with Ryan Clevenger. Ryan is sharing his personal story of substance use and recovery. Ryan shares his perspective on growing up in Texas and starting to drink alcohol at an early age, how that evolved into drug use, and eventually a life in recovery. Ryan is now an outreach coordinator for Oxford House and recently opened a house in Oshkosh. Ryan found Oxford House when he needed a place to live and some extra support. He reflects on his personal experience and explains why giving back and helping others is so important to him now. For any listeners who may be struggling with substance use, we encourage you to call 211 or text your zip code to 898-211 and get connected to resources in your area. For parents or guardians who might be listening and wondering how you can help prevent your children from drinking alcohol or experimenting with marijuana or other drugs at an early age, we encourage you to talk to your kids. Have a conversation. Ask them what they know or see about alcohol and other drugs at school, in the community, and on social media. What questions do they have? How do they feel about it all? Keep the conversation open and be willing to learn, support, and grow together. Not sure how to get started? Check out the DHS Small Talks website or SAMHSA's Talk They Hear You resources. Both are linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode. As always, feel free to send suggestions for topics or guests to info at breakwaterwi.org or join the conversation by leaving a comment on our social media. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. Ryan Clevenger is up next. Ryan, how are you? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we start by just telling everybody who you are and what you do? Uh, My name is Ryan Clevenger. I'm the Wisconsin Outreach Coordinator for Oxford House. And what is Oxford House? So Oxford House is a group of individuals that are in recovery um, across the United States. We have about 3,000 homes nationwide. Awesome. And you guys are new to Oshkosh, right? We are brand new to Oshkosh. We opened our first house in October. Very cool. Welcome to the neighborhood. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about uh, why you got involved or how you got involved with Oxford House. Uh, I got involved with Oxford House um, after I did a a stint in jail. Um, I'm from Texas and um, I was homeless and I had no place to go. And um, one of the guys that I ran into inside uh, told me about Oxford House And I had my family look it up for me, and that was, the rest was history. When I got out in uh, February 28th of 2019, um, I went home to my parents for uh, about five days, and then I found an Oxford house, and that's where I came from. So when when I was in Oxford house, I couldn't really imagine my life doing anything else other than giving back to some people that um, were in my position at one time in their life. And you are a resident at an Oxford house, so you are in recovery yourself. That is correct. I have three years, um, and it's really three years and a month and a few days. Nice. Congratulations. So tell me a little bit about your story. So Breakwater, as you know, you've gotten to know us a little bit. You've been involved in our treatment and recovery action team, Mm -hmm. and you've kind of gotten to know our coalition a little bit, and we're focused on substance use prevention. We have a drug-free communities grant, 
And we're working to help build up the protective factors in the community and reduce the opportunities or the instances of youth using substances at an early age and developing a substance use disorder. And I find a lot of value, I know a lot of people in our community find a lot of value in listening and hearing recovery stories and individual stories to help understand how as a community we can make an impact and maybe help prevent some of those struggles from happening. So you grew up in Texas. That's correct. So not growing up locally, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and maybe when you started using or experimenting with substances and how it progressed from there. So I'm 40 years old. Um, I started using alcohol when I was 14, um, partying at school, you know, partying while I was in high school. Um, I was always part of the older crowd, um, just wanting to fit in with them. I started drinking more. I kind of knew that I was a little bit different, kind of like some people, you know, they know when they start drinking that they're just, they just have that different. Um, I never really had an off switch. Um, you know, talking to my sponsor, it was one of those things that I knew that I was different, but I wasn't. So the AA definition of what I am is a binge drinker. Okay. Um, so I don't drink all the time, but when I do drink, it's very heavy. Uh, and I don't have... I drink until I get extremely intoxicated, I get sick, or I black out. Most of the time, I just get sick. Just, this is the way it is. And then uh, at 21 years old, um, I started experimenting with drugs. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I had gotten hurt, and I was waiting tables, and the guys were like, you know, hey, come out and party with us. You know, it's just ecstasy. It's not, no big deal. So I started experimenting with ecstasy. Um, that later led to methamphetamines. Methamphetamines led to GHB, um, where I, you know, I started doing cocaine. I started doing anything that had an upper value to it um, that would keep me at a level that I wasn't so, that I couldn't function, basically. Um, I didn't like to, you know, do drugs that I wasn't able to function at a higher level. Um, when I started doing, you know, speed and, and cocaine, I had a lot more energy. Um, that fearlessness went away. Um, I could approach anybody, didn't matter who it was, um, didn't matter, you know, mostly it was used for women, but, you know, when it, it didn't matter what they looked like, you know, um, I, di I didn't really care, I didn't have any fear, I had that confidence that can go with me. I still have that confidence, but um, I, I just don't have the drug use from it anymore. You know, and you, you mentioned that the the definition of, of your relationship with alcohol had you as a binge drinker and you weren't necessarily drinking all the time or every day, but when you did drink, it was to excess. That's correct. And that's, I'm glad you, you made that point because I think typically when people think about having a problem with alcohol, it's the everyday, the, the, the consistency and Binge drinking isn't always related back to having a substance use disorder or really recognizing that as a problem, especially with youth. It's, all oh, they're just going out to party for the weekend. They're still going to school every day. They're still making good grades, that kind of stuff. It, they're just blowing off steam on the weekend. So, I, so like with me, um, you know, I, I drank all the time. You know, I didn't even realize that I was an alcoholic until I was telling a story. That's how I figured out that I was an alcoholic, you know, because I just thought drugs were my, my issue for the, the longest time. Um, I went to prison in 2019 in 2009. Um, and again, I just thought drugs were my problem. I never figured out what the root of the problem was, why I always consistently kept making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, and it revolved, it started with alcohol. 
Um, and it didn't matter how successful I was. You know, when I got out of prison the first time, I went back and got my college uh, associate's degree in culinary arts. And again, I just thought drugs were my problem. So I never changed that aspect about my life. And I was an extremely good chef. Um, later, I ended up owning my own personal chef and catering business. Um, and I was making six figures a year. And it just, I just wasn't happy. I, it didn't matter what I did. Um, I was never happy. I was never satisfied in the jobs that I was doing. I was never satisfied in any of that stuff. So it didn't really matter what was going on. You said that you kind of came to the realization as you were telling a story that you had a problem with alcohol in addition to drugs. Right. So um, when I was living in an Oxford house, um, I was talking to one of my roommates and he and I were just talking about um, the good old days back in the, you know, as we, most addicts, you know, talk about the good old days or, you know, um, and we were t- I was telling a story of uh, how I was with my, my ex-girlfriend at the time and we were at Country Fest and, you know, when you're going to a concert, you, you pregame a little bit. So we were pregaming in the parking lot. We ended up running into some people um, that had a bunch of jello shots. And we started doing jello shots with these people. And, um, you know, next thing you know, we're walking in there and we're getting more drinks while we're inside the concert. And we were probably in the concert for maybe an hour, 15, 30 minutes, something like that. Um, the concert was four and a half hours long. And I had to have her you know, help me to leave because I was getting sick and I couldn't do it. And, you know, and that was the story that I tell that, you know, that made me realize I was an alcoholic because I'd had several stories like that. It wasn't just that one, but that was just the one that I can remember because I was trying to be funny about it. But in the same time, I realized to myself that I might be an alcoholic because I had those, that was just one of the stories that I had. It, you know, there's numerous stories that I had that all transpired to the same thing, you know, the same girl, um, having to go out to the parking lot because I was intoxicated after I went got off work. Um, and she had to help me inside because I couldn't get out of my car. Um, or the times that I would call her on the phone because I was going 100 miles an hour on the highway, um, blackout drunk, and I didn't know how to get home. I mean, there's just stories and stories and stories. You know, I'm very thankful that I never got a DWI, which you guys didn't hear in Wisconsin call an OWI. Um, I was only thankful that I only got one of those. And, um, and I didn't hurt anybody or kill anybody or get into an accident of any kind. Um, but I never, you know, there's times that I slept in my car because I couldn't drive home and, uh, I didn't want to drive home. So I just would crawl in the back seat and sleep for four or five hours to sleep it off. And then, then I would go home and then I'd get up and go to work. Um, but there was also that period of abstinence where I could go buy, uh, a 12 pack and it would sit in my fridge for three or four days and I wouldn't even drink it. I may drink one or two out of it, but you know, then there was at times where I would go to the bars with my friends and I'd have, you know, seven, eight, and then keep encouraging my buddies to keep going with me, you know, to do shots or, you know, to have more drinks. And they're like, Ryan, we, no, we can't, we can just can't keep up with you, you know, and, and that's just the way it went. Um, and that, those are the stories that I remember telling, you know, one of the guys that lived in my house and that made me realize that I was at, you know, an alcoholic. And so I went to my sponsor and I talked to him about it and I was like, Hey, uh, I think I might have an alcohol problem too. And he's like, well, he's like, tell me about it. So I told him about it and he's like, well, you know, there's three different types of drinkers. There's, you know, the person that drinks occasionally that actually can moderate their drinking. Um, those people don't have any issues with alcohol. There's a binge drinker, somebody that, that drinks heavily when they do drink, but they don't drink every single day. And then you have your full blown alcoholic that drinks every single day and sneak drinks. You know, the one reason that I never thought I was an alcoholic is because I never, you know, I wasn't a sneak drinker. I didn't um, have to drink alcohol to function in the morning. Um, I could go days without drinking, um, sometimes weeks without even having a drink. Um, 
And that's why I never once thought I was an alcoholic. It wasn't until I started telling those stories and going to Alcoholics Anonymous that I, re I realized that I could actually be an alcoholic too, that this is where some of my problems stem from. Uh, because even when I was in high school, I was, I was drinking like this. Um, but I just thought it was okay because, you know, here it is. It's the weekend. I was making a 3.5 GPA, um, graduating in the top 20% of my class. Um, I never thought I had, a, you know, an issue because I could go drink on Saturday and Sunday and then on Monday be up at 6 in the morning to go back to school um, and still, you know, maintain my good grades. Bring me back to 14-year-old Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you remember any prevention programming in school, any prevention messaging that you saw on TV in school, talks with your parents, anything like that? So the only, like, prevention that was around when I – this was 1994, um, was D.A.R.E. That was, that was the only thing. I, and I remember taking D.A.R.E. in 7th or 8th grade, mm -hmm. um, and it was all about drugs. Um, it had nothing to do with alcohol. Um, I even think back then the drinking age was 18. So I can remember when I, you know, because I grew up, um, I, was, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. I grew up, I lived 13 years in Corpus Christi, Texas. Then I moved to Dallas, Texas. I can remember as, I think I was 12 years old, walking down the street with one of my friends going, I can't wait till I get to 18 because I can drink. I can drink like all the adult people. Um, you know, I, I was born into a military family. So at that point in time, you could actually buy alcohol at 18 on the base. Um, and if you wanted to buy alcohol in town, you had to be 21. So I always knew that I wanted to serve in the military, which I ended up serving in the military. Um, but I just can remember that I always wanted to drink for some reason because, you know, my family, they drank. Uh, my, my parents didn't really so much drink very much, uh, but my, my, uh, my extended family, my mom's side of the family, they drank heavily. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I can always remember saying that oh, I want to be like my Uncle Charlie. You know, his his drink of choice was uh, beef eater gin. Okay. And, you know, we would go to family functions, and that's exactly what we'd have, a beef eater gin on the rocks. And um, I always can remember just wanting to be like my uncle. And, you know, because he was just this, he was a head federal judge in Puerto Rico, and he was just this astute man, um, you know, very prominent. And I was like, if that's I, I just want to be like that. That was the picture of success for you. That was the picture of success for me, you know, because this, you know, my mom's side of the family is extremely wealthy. And here these guys, you know, here that, that side of the family, they drank a lot. Um, they were loud, um, but they could maintain their alcohol. I don't know if they're alcoholics or not. I'm not, I'm not anyone to judge. Um, but at the same time, that's the persona that I wanted to be like was them. Yeah. And that, you know, we talk a lot about social norms and your family's relationship with alcohol or other substances helps to shape your social norms along with advertising that you see when you're, you know, driving to work, walking to school, that kind of stuff, the displays in the supermarkets, all of that stuff, whether we realize it or not, is, is shaping our perception of alcohol, of other substance, of normal, quote unquote, normal use. Um, so if that's what you see and you're, you're looking at your uncle and the rest of your family is, ah, they've made it and this is how they are, that makes sense that you would, you would want to do that and that's how you know you've made it. So it's just, you know, I gravitated towards them because that's just what I want to be. You know, that's what I wanted to be. I, you know, I've la learned later in life that I want something different with my life. It doesn't matter how much money I have or, you know, how famous I am or, you know, how many people I help as long as that one person that's struggling out there is the one person that I can reach. That's all that really matters is if I can reach just one person that's out there struggling in addiction. It doesn't, you know, I'm just one person, you know, yeah, I open up recovery homes for people, but it's the guidance that I, I give them the power to learn how to, to empower themselves. And that's the cool thing about my job now is that I get to work with individuals all across the state 
and I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm here, I'm there to help guide them in the right paths that they can do so that they can learn how to operate, you know, life on life's terms. Um, and so a lot of these people in recovery can stop surviving and they can actually start living in life um, because there's a huge difference between living and surviving. Um, and I didn't really know the definition for a long time, but it, I can tell you today that I know the definition between surviving and living because I'm actually living proof that you can recover. Um, somebody that's got multiple felonies on their record, that's been to jail multiple times, um, that I've had judges tell me that if I got in trouble again, that I was going to get life in prison and it didn't scare me. Uh, it did just really didn't matter to me. I, I, I thought I was my own boss. I could do what I want to, that nobody in this world um, could tell me what I could and couldn't do. And it just got to a point where I was tired of living that lifestyle where I was angry all the time and I didn't understand where my anger came from. Uh, and I just, I just had to let it all go one day. And, and that's all it really came to is when I let that anger and that frustration all go, I, I started be, I started becoming you know, better at who I was. I started figuring out who I was going to become and what I wanted to do with my life because you know, nobody likes to be at 40 years old. You know, I, I, was 30, I was 39 at the time when I got out of jail. Nobody wants to be a 39-year-old uh, with not a dollar to their name, um, just the clothes on their back that they walked in there and not have anything trying to restart life over and over again. Um, and I've, started, I've restarted life several times. I've lost everything, gained it all back lost even more than I did before the first time and then got it all back and then to, you know, to sit there and lose it all over again. Um, and it's not, it's some of the things that I started realizing since I've been in recovery that I always had that mantra that I was doing it to myself. I wasn't doing it to the ones around me because I, they weren't putting the chemical into my body. They weren't forcing it down, you know, me to do it. Um, I thought that I was just doing it to myself. Later that I realized that I was impacting my family around me. And the people that knew me, the friends that were around me, because they were getting to watch me self-destruct. They were getting to watch me tear myself down to a point where the next option was death. Um, and, you know, death is, is, yes, the ultimate option. You know, when you look at drugs, you're slowly killing yourself, um, whether that be from overdosing yourself or just the malnutrition that you do, the lack of taking uh, better hygiene care of yourself. Um, it doesn't really matter. And that's the thing people don't see is that it doesn't just affect us. It affects the ones that are around us. Um, and because they're the ones that can actually see the transformation of us when we're, you know, killing ourselves, essentially. You mentioned that, you know, once you kind of let go of that anger, you started to kind of find your path to recovery. Were, do you, did you have, like, were you in, did you have a lot of anger or angst or anxiety as a kid? Was that there from the start as kind of like a driving factor in into starting to experiment with substances, drinking alcohol at 14 and, and going forward from there? Or did that develop along the way? Uh, I think the anger just developed along the way because you know I had a great childhood. I had a mom and dad that both loved me. I played sports. Uh, I think where kind of my anger started to turn a little bit is that here I was this kid that was raised in Corpus Christi, Texas, where I played baseball my whole entire life. Um, and then my dad tells me when I'm 12 years old that he got a job in Louisville High School, um, which is a suburb of Dallas, and that I was going to have to move and that I was going to have to leave everything that I knew down there and then go up to go up to Louisville to start a new life. And I think that's where my anger kind of started out, because when I came up to Louisville, Texas, I wanted to play baseball again. But because these kids didn't know who I was, they weren't willing to give me the opportunity. So there it was. Here I am playing baseball and I'm sitting on the bench or 
I'm playing in the outfield. I was a catcher. I was an all-star catcher in Corpus Christi, and I was extremely good at it. Um, I thought I had a career. You know, that's one of the things that I wanted to do from a little kid. I can remember saying that I wanted to play in the Major League Baseball, and I knew that if I had stayed there, I would have gone to college playing baseball. Um, so I moved up to Louisville, Texas, where everything is a lot more competitive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, a lot of the people that actually made varsity and junior varsity were the people that people had known their whole entire life. They'd watched them as little kids playing baseball, and they'd gone up there. So they weren't really willing to give people an opportunity to play that they didn't really know. Even though the people that they would like, hey, go warm this catch, you know, go warm this pitcher up. So I'd warm the pitcher up, and they'd be like, dude, you catch better than our our catcher that we have now. And I was like. I, I know that I'm, I'm a better catcher. I can, I can, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm confident and cocky at the same time, but I knew that I was better than them, that I could, you know, do the things just better because I had practiced that position for many, many years. And when they didn't give me the opportunity, I started to get angry. So I even tried out for high school baseball. And, you know, because my dad did teach ROTC in the high school that I was going to, a lot of the coaches were not very um, – they didn't really like ROTC being in their school. Gotcha. So they kind of looked out on me because my dad was an ROTC instructor and they didn't understand why they were putting a military program in high school um, instead of putting those funds to something better. So they would always constantly, well, tell me that I think you should just do ROTC and not play baseball. And so um, I think that, you know, started to get my anger up a lot more. And so then I ended up playing football for these guys and I ended up making the varsity team my senior year. Um, and I, did, I still didn't play, but I, you know, I, I did whatever I could um, to play sports because I loved baseball. But if I wanted to do anything with that school, I had to play football because in Texas, football is king. Yeah. So baseball is just kind of one of those side things that you do during the summer. Um, but baseball is our football is what you, you really want to be in. If you want to have anything of a high school career, you, you know, you're going to get recognized more for football, for football. Yeah. So that's, you know. And then the anger just belt and belt and belt. And, you know, I went into the military at 18. Um, I went into the Marine Corps. Um, two years later, I ended up hurting myself. So here it is again, all the anger and frustration that I had as a, as a youth growing up. Um, now I go into the military where my life is supposed to take off. I wanted to be a career Marine. Um, I joined the Marines as a reservist because I wanted to go, be, to, go to school and I wanted to be an officer because my dad was an enlisted uh, person in the Marine Corps. I wanted to be an officer, so I enlisted in um, as a 92-day reservist. It's where I would go to boot camp for 90, you know, less than 92 days. Then I would come out and go to school. So I did that, and then, of course, um, I go to school, um, and there again, I'm in remedial classes because I missed the test by a few. I missed, the, you know, to be out of those classes by a few points, and so I was angry about that, um, that I'm having to go to these classes where I don't really need them, and, I mean, math, teachers would put problems on the board and I could look at it and tell you the answer within 10 seconds because math just came natural to me. Um, and then they'd ask me how I did it with no work on my page that I had to have cheated. And I'm like, no, put another page, put another, put another problem up on the board and I'll do it. So the lady put another problem up on the board and sure enough, within about 30 seconds, I had the answer and she's like, you're cheating somehow go to the principal's office. So again, I got frustrated with that. So I ended up dropping out of college. Um, and then I, I, I bounced around for a long time and, in the jobs that I was doing, um, I ended up working for Lucent Technologies because my job in the Marine Corps was communications. So I did communications um, out, you know, outside in, in you know, the, the private sector. And I did good at that, but I just, there was always something that was always missing. I was always striving for that, so what's, you know, that what's next better, you know, whatever else is, is better. 
that's what I want to do. I wasn't making enough money. I wasn't dating the, the, the best looking girl or um, I wasn't drinking as much as my buddies or, you know, I wasn't going out and spending enough time with, you know, for myself and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And it just, for the longest time, nothing was ever good enough. And, you know, I, like I said, I got in trouble when I was 29 years old. Um, I went to prison for the first time when I was 29. And that didn't even phase me. You know, I got out. I thought that, you know, I didn't have any kind of dr alcohol issues, that drugs were just my problem, that I could complete parole. Um, and just, you know, I would get my degree. I ended up completing um, parole without any issues. Um, I actually completed it faster than most people do. Um, they put me on a special program because I was enrolled in college. Um, I was paying all my, you know, fines and stuff like that on time. I wasn't late to any of the meetings. I never missed them. Um, I, I wasn't using any drugs or alcohol. I was, I was using alcohol, but I wasn't using any drugs. Um, so they didn't have to worry about that. Um, any class that they told me to complete, I completed it. Um, I was, you know, I, I thrive in a structured environment where I'm, I'm supposed, I'm supposed to do something at a specific time. I, I thrive in those kind of environments. And so then, you know, fast forward to, um, October 2nd, 2017, I was incarcerated. Um, and that's where I figured out that I was just, I'd been, just been angry for over 20 years and the anger just had built and built and built. And, you know, being in relationships with people that they're wanting a future with you, but you're not wanting a future with them. And so, you know, when people would talk about, Hey, I'd like to get married, you know, they're not, they're not telling you when you're dating somebody that they want to get married for their own health. They're telling you that they want to get married because they see a future with you. And I see that as a red flag. And I was like, bye, mm -hmm. I don't want anything to do with this. Um, and so I would just, I would leave before they had a chance to hurt me or I had a chance to hurt them. And um, when I got to jail um, in October, I was like, you know what? I don't know why I'm so angry. So some, you know, of course that initial realization that I was locked up, that I didn't know when I was going to leave, um, that it was going to cost me over hundred grand in bail if I wanted to get out, that I didn't have, that my parents didn't have. Um, and so... I, I just realized that I was going to be stuck there. So um, I just had to make the best of my time. So while I was there, I ended up becoming a, uh, an inmate trustee where I had uh, privileges to go outside um, and actually work. Um, and then I also signed up for counseling classes because I knew there was some pattern that I kept repeating over and over again because I would get, you know, I was clean for five years. And then um, my father passed away in 2015. And that one incident right there sparked a whole nother set of me going back through addiction again. And that was two years, you know, from the minute that he died, it was just over two years um, that I got into addiction and it was a lot heavier this time to where the point where um, I tried to commit suicide after my dad passed away because I couldn't understand why, you know, my hero and my father, um, who was my mentor, my best friend, you know, and the, the one person that I looked up to had would just was suddenly taken away from me. And so I couldn't understand it. I, I tried to be strong for my family, but I just wasn't strong enough. And one of the reasons that I wasn't strong enough is because I wasn't working any kind of a program that I could build on when something tragic happened in my life. I just abstained from using all substances. And then when that, when that pressure of the dam broke, um, then I was like, well, I don't want to feel these feelings that I'm feeling. Um, I don't know how to feel these feelings that I'm feeling. Um, and it was a lot of anger, sad, you know, a lot of hate and, you know, just all built up. And I was like, I just want to be numb. And that's exactly what happened is I started using chemicals again, um, to, to numb those feelings and those pains that I had, because I didn't want to feel them anymore. You mentioned that you signed up for counseling classes and stuff, and you, you, you recognized that there was a pattern and you wanted to stop repeating that pattern. 
Um, so you signed up for these counseling classes. Where do you think that helped you the most? Was it just understanding the 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 process of addiction, understanding that there was an issue there, developing coping skills? What do you was it just the structure? What do you think helped you the most? So what helped me the most was the fact that I could actually start describing what my feelings were. Even though I didn't know what I was feeling, they I I could describe to them what it was going on with me. And that's what that's what helped me the most is just having that person to talk to me that I felt wouldn't judge who I was. And I think that's the number one thing that most alcoholics and addicts, you know, they don't want to be judged for their background. They don't want to be judged for what they did in the past. And I know, you know, for me personally, that's exactly what it was. I didn't want to be around somebody that was going to constantly judge me. And that's the one thing that, you know, we, so if we start, you know, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, if I start feeling somebody's judging me, I shut down instantly and I'll just change the subject. If I feel someone's not listening to me, um, I will, I will just change the subject. I'll just move on. And, you know, working with a counselor, um, they actually, you know, were attentive. They were listening to what I was saying and, they were giving me positive feedback. Um, and it was, sometimes it would just be that, you know, I was upset for, you know, my parents, you know, my mom not wanting to talk to me or she was too busy to talk to me or the fact that it was another Thanksgiving and another Christmas that I was missing out on. It was another birthday that I was locked up. Um, you know, just those, those little things like that, that I had to get through, you know, that here it is again, you know, the last time I, I missed, you know, two Christmases, two Thanksgivings and a birthday because I was locked up again. And, um, you know, like I, I couldn't understand why I kept doing it. So they helped me realize the patterns that I was doing. Um, they issued, they let me, uh, read some self-help books or they would, you know, the, the counselors would be like, here, here's a book for you. Go read this. Let me know what you think. Um, tell me what your best part of it was. And that's exactly what it was, is that I started wanting to learn more about my addiction, um, so that I could better myself. I wanted to start learning as much as I could when it came to my addiction and what caused me to go down those roads um, than ever before, because I was tired of repeating that same pattern over and over again, where I would get out, I would do good. And then at some, you know, some incident would happen and then I would just backslide and then I would get, you know, start doing drugs again, or I'd start drinking heavily again. And so those are the things that I wanted to change about myself. And that's exactly what I started doing was I started learning about my addiction personally and what addiction did to me. So we know that everybody's road to recovery is different. There's a lot of different treatment options out there. There, you know, from kind of the the self-help, the 12-step, the faith-based to traditional inpatient treatment options. And everybody is successful with something different. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Talk to me about your process. What worked for you after you got out of prison the last time and into Oxford House? So what worked for me the last time is that when I found Oxford House, um, I met a group of individuals that were living in my house with me that had similar stories to me uh, that weren't going to judge me based on what my past was. Um, they were going to sit there and listen to me, and they were going to give me what their experience was um, through their journey when they first started off in recovery. And I was also introduced to AA, um, which I had attended AA before, but it was... It was nothing like the AA meetings that I go to now. Um, I was literally in a church up on the second floor with like two other guys. Then we're all looking at each other and staring at each other. That's what my first introduction to AA was. Um, and then my second introduction to AA was uh, one of the girls that I had used with. Um, she asked me to take her to an AA meeting because she was going to go pick up drugs from her, her dealer who was in AA. 
Um, so, you know, you can understand that, like, that's what my picture of AA was, not this program that actually works for somebody that actually wants it to work for them. So I go into this AA meeting on March 5th um, with a couple of the guys from my house, and I'm sitting in there, and um, I start listening to the stories that people are talking about when they're giving their feedback, and I was like, hey, I can relate to that. Hey, these alcoholics in here, they've used drugs before, too. Um it's, it's so unusual to see, you know, because when you think of AA, you think that they're just going to talk about just drinking. But, you know, a lot of people that are in AA, they've used drugs before. Um, that's kind of, you know, I, I go to AA because I can relate to a lot of those people because that's where my addiction first started was, in, was drinking alcohol. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't one of those ones that used drugs first and then started drinking. I started drinking first before I ever put a substance in my body. Before I ever put that chemical in my body, I drank heavily. Um, so you're talking eight years before I ever tried any kind of drugs that I was drinking heavily. Um, and when I got out of high school and into the military, it just increased even more because that's all you're doing. You're just, you know, you're, you're doing your job for five days. And then when you have your leave, um, you're drinking with all your, you know, all your buddies on the weekends. And that's, you know, that's what I did. So that's what I knew. Um, but through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I actually started to do the steps that I was supposed to do. Um, I started learning more about myself. I started learning about um, all the people that I had passed wrong, all the people that um, I had a problem with that I didn't even know that I had a problem with, all that stuff that I was keeping, you know, inside um, that was keeping me angry um, that I was still holding on to for whatever reason. I have no idea. You know, a lot of people don't, you know, for myself, I didn't realize how much that actually was on me, um, how much anger that I was just because um, my buddy had a better car than I did. Um, or he had more zeros in his bank account than me, or I was struggling. Uh, we'd started off the same, you know, our same paths had started off the same way, but yet here I am in the ditch and here he is extremely successful with this stuff. And he's going the other way. And I was going, you know, I was going the complete opposite. Um, and, and that's where, you know, working a solid program actually comes into play. So you go into Oxford house, you meet this group of guys that you're living with, you get involved with AA and here at what point did you transition from a resident to where you are now with Oxford House? So when I was in Oxford House, each um, each house that we st we started in an area, we once you get over three houses, we want you to start a chapter. Uh, that chapter is kind of a an insulation to the houses. So um, I became involved in my chapter. Um, I started off as a fundraising chair. Um, where I actually went with another group of people um, where we um, raised funds for um, fun events that we were doing, whether that be um, a cookout, volleyball tournaments, or, you know, just little fun outings for everybody and stuff like that. So that's how I got involved with Oxford House. And then um, I got elected to the uh, chapter treasurer where we're, I was in charge of all the treasure funds uh, of the entire chapter. Um, and then we went to World. Um, Oxford House puts on a World Convention every single year. This year it was canceled because of COVID. Um, next year it's back in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and when I went to World, um, I had realized that I wanted to do what some of the other people that I'd seen that were successful. Um, and they were called outreach workers. Um, and so I became friends with some of them. And I'd asked them, hey, well, what does it take to become an outreach worker? Because I want to do that. And so they told me what it takes, that I had to have a car, that I had to have at least six months in Oxford House, um, that I had to be working an active recovery program. They would like it if I was through all my 12 steps and if I could handle the pressure of being an outreach worker because there's a lot of pressure that comes with, you know, not, you know, it's not just working with people. You get to deal with 
You know, like in Milwaukee, we have 40 different personalities that I got to deal with. Um, and they can all be explosive sometimes and they can just be honoring and hardheaded um, to finding investors, to all that stuff. So when I went to World, I started learning more about Oxford House. And the more I learned about Oxford House, the more I learned about their traditions, the way that they were, um, and stuff like that, was it made me uh, go, you know, I really want to pursue that as my career. When I'm watching people come up to some of these people that I'd never met, and they're like, you had this great impact on me. Um, I just want to tell you thank you. That's, you know, that's what I wanted. I wanted to somebody... You know, I wanted for somebody to come up to me and tell me that I had a great impact on their life. And that's how I knew that I wanted to start helping people because I was in that position where when I was locked up, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know who to turn to. So I wanted to be that shining light for somebody that was going down those roads that I could guide them and, and have them not go the same path that I did. Well, I was going to ask why you wanted to come and share your story today, but I think you've just answered it. <laughs> um. I don't. I love talking about my, my story. I love giving it, and, and I love um, people to listen to my story because my story is not like unusual than anybody else's. Um, you know, using drugs, going to jail, um, getting out, meeting you know all kinds of people, doing all kinds of fun things. But you know, it always led me back to the same place: destruction. You know, um, and being homeless and couch surfing, and you know, losing vehicle after vehicle, and you know watching one bank account get closed because you overdrafted it and you knew you overdrafted it on purpose because you wanted a pack of cigarettes. So you're going to overdraft it on purpose. So you said, instead of one pack, I'll just buy two packs. So it's not as bad, you know, and, and to now I don't have to live that way anymore. You know, I don't smoke anymore. I vape, but um, if I want to go buy something at the store, I don't have to look at what my bank account is first before I go to the grocery store. Um, if I want to go purchase um, a high-end thing, I know how to save my money to buy whatever that, that might be. Um, and that's, that's what I want. I want to instill hope in people that, you know, there is life after this, that you can recover if you, if you do what you want to, you know, if you do the necessary steps to, to make your life better. You know, and the one thing that, you know, through COVID, you know, a lot of people look at COVID as this, this big bad disease that's come through. I've, um, but the one thing that I looked at COVID as is this, this is a time that since I'm stuck at home, um, I might as well do some more educational stuff while I'm stuck at home. So uh, I started taking a bunch of BJA classes um, to get, you know, the uh, continuing education units. Um, I took a bunch of those. And then the other thing that I did is I enrolled to become a Wisconsin certified peer specialist because I wanted to take my career to an even further length because Oxford House is maybe the job that I'll have for the rest of my life, maybe not. Um, I couldn't tell you. I don't know what time tells, you know. Um, but I know that I'm in a better position now because I got, I became a certified peer specialist that I can help the residents that come in me and I can help the people that I meet just, you know, on the streets that come up to me, um, and ask me questions about myself. So I want to be able to be better educated when it comes to, you know, what I, you know, what I know about addiction. Um, and then I've also, um, started working with veterans upward bound, um, to enroll at, uh, UW Milwaukee, um, to get my degree in addiction counseling, because I, like I said, I don't want just. I don't want to just be closed-minded in this. Um, and I don't want COVID to be a hindrance on me learning because I could have looked at it as a negative. Yeah, I got to wear a mask all the time. Yeah, I'm stuck indoors. Um, I can't really go see who I want to. Um, you know, I could have looked at it all in the negative light, but I said, you know what? Hey, there's a positive in this too somewhere um, is to look at, you know, what you can do with your time wisely. Excellent advice there. Always good to look at it from a positive perspective whenever you can. If you had 
one word of advice. If somebody listening to this podcast right now is struggling, they're listening to your story, they're finding those similarity, similarities and parallels, what is your one piece of advice for them? Just reach out to somebody that you feel comfortable with. Just talk about it. Um, when you're wanting to take that first drink or you wanted to put that first chemical in your, in your body, um, talk to somebody first. Um, don't just go do it because most of the time we, as alcoholics and addicts, we relapse way before we ever put any chemicals in our body. Um, we've been thinking about it for a long period of time um, before we even do it. And it just got to a point where it just boiled over. Um, instead of just letting it and just keeping it all inside, um, just go talk to somebody. If you feel comfortable, um, talk to you know a family friend that's gone down the same road that will actually listen to you, that will give you constructive feedback versus destructive. Um, and that's what it's all about is if you can guide somebody in a positive manner, um, they're more receptive to it versus just attacking another person. Um, and that's the way I believe is that if you truly want to take a drink, you know, just talk to a person before you go do it. For family members of people who are struggling with substance use or addiction, what's your advice to the family members who are watching this unfold? How can they best help that person? I know it's going to sound harsh and it's going to sound rough, you know, um, and it took me a long time to understand why my family did it to me. But unfortunately, you're going to have to let the individual go through it. Um, if you keep trying to help that person, um, you're just enabling that person to continue to do it. I can tell you personally that my mom and dad, um, if I got into trouble, they uh, would bail me out. Um, if I was losing my car, my parents would pay my car note. Um, I never learned responsible, you know, to be responsible for my actions that, you know, unfortunately, it's a sad fact of life that at some point, you know, my mom has told me this several times while I was in my addiction that she had to just stop because she knew that if she continued that I would never get any better, that if she continued to help me, um, that I would never learn my lesson, that I had to learn it for myself. I'm, I'm, I'm most addicts and alcoholics, myself included, were extremely hard headed. Um, and it takes doing things, you know, repeatedly over and over again, expecting that different result. Um, to fully understand what we're doing. And the best I can advice I can give to a family is that you're going to have to let the individual that's going through, you know, alcohol or substance use disorder, um, you're going to have to let them do it on their own. I'm not asking you to stop loving them. I'm not asking you to do any of that stuff because, you know, God knows my parents love me through thick and thin. And, um, but you're going to have to support from a distance. You can't just constantly keep giving that person everything that they want because they're never going to learn. If that person wants treatment, they're going to really have to want it for themselves. They can't want it for you. They can't want it for anybody else. They're going to have to want it for themselves. And when they truly want it for themselves, that's when they'll start getting better. And I'm just going to throw out there for anybody listening, if you are looking for help or connection to resources, 211 is a great number. Call 211, text your zip code to 898211, and they will help you get connected to resources locally as well. Ryan, thank you for being here today. Is there any last things you want to share? You know, if you guys uh, want to contact Oxford House, if you're looking for a place to live, you can go to OxfordVacancies.com and you can type in your state and your county and your zip code and you can find a house that's near you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you.